Hello and welcome to Saintly Progress, a podcast about the history of Christianity. Episode 4, Helena Augusta, the mother of Constantine. If you have heard of anyone from the late Roman Empire, chances are that person is the Emperor Constantine, known as Constantine the Great. He was, famously, the first Christian Roman Emperor, although that claim is open to debate. More definitely, he was the Emperor who made Christianity officially legal within the Roman Empire and paved the way to it becoming the Empire's official religion by the end of the century. This episode is not about Constantine, although he is revered as a Christian saint and we will probably do one on him in due course. This episode is all about Helena, who was Constantine's mother. She is another figure of importance in the story of Rome's conversion to Christianity, and another good example of Christian mythology, as we talked about last time with St. Mark. In this episode, we will talk about the state of the empire and the church at the end of the 3rd century, and then have a good look at the life and legends surrounding Helena Augusta, known today as St. Helena of Constantinople. But first, as always, a short life of the saint. Helena was born around 255 AD, probably in the Roman province of Bithynia, now northeastern Turkey. It was once widely believed that she was in fact born in Britain, but this is now held to be untrue. She was the daughter of an innkeeper, and sometime before 274, she met the future Roman Emperor Constantius Chlorus. More on him later. In 274, she gave birth to a son, Constantine. When her husband became emperor, he had to leave her in order to marry again for political reasons. We do not know when she became a Christian. What we do know is that on the death of Constantius Chlorus, Helena's son Constantine became emperor, and he treated her with the utmost honour. She became the Augusta, or Empress, and when Christianity became officially tolerated, she devoted all her energies to promoting it. She built churches and other Christian buildings across the empire, particularly at Rome and Trier. In her old age, Helena made a famous pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where she founded churches and gave money to the poor. She is considered to have invented pilgrimage and resurrected the city of Jerusalem as a Christian centre, largely thanks to her apparent discovery of the true cross, the cross upon which Christ was crucified. She died sometime around 330, with her son still on the throne. Now, there are some interesting details to go into uh, in more detail, and some problems with that short life which we need to clear up. But before that, let's set the scene. The Roman Empire in the 3rd century was the only great power in the Western world, but it was in crisis. Before that, the Romans had experienced two centuries of unchallenged peace and prosperity. All this changed in 180 AD, when the Emperor Marcus Aurelius died and his son Commodus, of gladiator fame, was raised to the purple. Side note, for some reason it is a convention in Roman history that instead of saying someone came to the throne, as we would of an English king, we say that they were raised to the purple. 
I don't know why that is, but it is a colourful convention I rather like, so I'm going to stick with it. Commodus was apparently just as bad as he appears in the film Gladiator, and his cruelty and corruption quickly saw the Empire topple into crisis mode. He was eventually assassinated by his guards, and for the next hundred years, Rome was in an almost constant state of crisis. During that time, over 30 different men claimed to be Roman emperor, many of them not lasting more than a year, and very few dying of natural causes. There were almost constant military coups, with various generals declaring themselves emperor and marching on Rome. This meant that they took their armies away from the frontiers, and so barbarians roamed across the provinces raiding and pillaging. Also, because of all this, the economy collapsed, because all these new emperors minted millions of new coins to pay their troops, causing dramatic inflation. This meant that people tried to stop paying their taxes. Civic participation, that is, serving on the local city council, sponsoring the repair of the local aqueduct, or building a new statue in the forum, basically ended as local elites re retreated into a sort of siege-like private life. This meant that the empire increasingly became more of a police state, as the central government was required to step into local administration and get people to pay increasingly heavy taxes. This period is known in history as the crisis of the 3rd century. From the point of view of Christianity, this was an interesting time. When the empire was doing well, the Christian church had slowly grown as a largely underground and otherwise quiet movement. During the crisis years, many people began to feel the old gods had abandoned Rome, and they looked to new religions that would offer more personal comfort. These were the so-called Eastern mystery cults, things like the worship of Mithras, Isis, Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, and of course that carpenter's son from Judea. These Eastern mystery cults were different from traditional Roman religion. They generally worshipped only one god, and required more exclusivity and commitment from their adherents. In the old days, most people believed that all the gods existed. It was more a case of thinking that some were more important than others, or favoured certain places or people over others, and some were more appropriate for certain situations than others. You might make a sacrifice to Hestia to bless your household, thank Mars for a successful campaign, or go to the oracle at Delphi, sacred to Apollo, when you wanted a particular question answered. Local gods were popular. If you lived in a place like Athens, then the temple of Athena, the Acropolis, was at the centre of city life, and prominent citizens would take part in the worship of Athena as part of their civic duties. On top of all that, there was also the imperial cult. This was the belief that dead Roman emperors became gods and continued to protect the empire. This was widely held to be a bit of nonsense, as some people observed at the time. The last words of the emperor Vespasian are supposed to have been, Oh dear, I think I am becoming a god. But the imperial cult was a powerful legal fiction and it was an important patriotic duty to make sacrifices to the dead emperors. This seems to have been the main stick that pagans used to beat the new mystery cults, and Christianity in particular. 
They were monotheists and believed that worshipping other gods was blasphemous, so they refused to take part in sacrifices to the imperial cult. So, during the crisis, you have participation in local temples declining, people looking to solace from the more emotionally satisfying Eastern religions. Christianity and others became more fashionable among the elite, in the army and the imperial government. Traditional Romans became alarmed about this. Some of them began to think that the gods were abandoning the empire because people had stopped worshipping them, and in particular stopped taking part in the imperial cult. So, beginning with the Emperor Decius in 250, around the time that Helena was born, the Roman state began its first top-down systematic persecution of Christians. Anyone who refused to make sacrifice to the emperors was subject to imprisonment or death. During the next decades, there were successive waves of persecution. Okay, that's enough backstory. Today's story really begins with the accession of the most important of the crisis soldier emperors, Diocletian, who is raised to the purple in 284. Diocletian is famous as the emperor who, as my university tutor used to say, stopped the rot and ended the crisis with a series of energetic reforms. Most importantly for our purposes, he decided that, that the empire could not be controlled by one ruler. The problem was, as we said earlier, that emperors were constantly in danger from plots against them by usurping generals. This meant that the emperor had to keep the largest army with him at all times. So, if the emperor was in Syria, this meant that he couldn't afford to also have a large army on the Rhine or the Danube, and that meant that whenever barbarians crossed the Rhine to do a little pillaging, the emperor had to quickly up sticks and travel potentially thousands of miles to deal with it. As we've seen, emperors were also constantly in danger from their powerful generals, thinking they'd take the empire for themselves. Diocletian's ingenious solution to all this was to establish the principle that more than one person could be emperor at one time. There had been co-emperors in the past, but these were generally brothers dividing the empire between them or sons being elevated early. Diocletian's innovation was to establish the principle that a college of emperors would share power between them. It is often said simplistically that he divided the empire into parts, that is not quite right. As I understand it, he wanted the four emperors to jointly control the whole empire, but with each one having a zone of responsibility. This would mean that ambitious generals would be included in government, have them inside the tent pissing out, as it were. The idea was to have two senior emperors, called Augusti, and two junior colleagues, called Caesars, after ten years, the Augusti would retire, the Caesars would move up to Augusti, and two new Caesars would be appointed. This system is known by historians as the Tetrarchy, or Rule of Four. The borders would be defended, there wouldn't be any need for coups, the succession was planned for, and the empire would return to peace and stability. It didn't quite work out like that, and there were more civil wars, of course there were, but Diocletian did manage to stabilise the empire, and Rome did experience another century of prosperity and another golden age before the whole thing started to really fall apart. First, Diocletian raised an energetic and loyal general called Maximian to be his colleague. Then, they 
appointed two more generals to become the junior emperors, Galerius and Constantius Chlorus, and this is where we finally get back to Constantius Chlorus and to Helena, the subject of today's episode. Constantius Chlorus was, like Diocletian and the other 3rd century crisis emperors, a soldier of humble birth. Probably. There is very little that can be said with certainty about the early lives of a lot of these people. He was a loyal follower of several emperors, rose up through the ranks and eventually landed a gig as governor of Dacia uh, in what is now Romania. At some point in his career, he took up with an innkeeper's daughter from Bithynia, Helena. I'm going to quote briefly from a liturgical book of saints' lives I have, which paints this in the most remarkable manner. Helena was about 27 when a Roman officer, passing through Bithynia, fell in love with her and married her. This soldier, who was always gentle and tolerant, was called Constantius Chlorus, and Helena was then a poor innkeeper's daughter. In 284, they had a son who they named Constantine. Constantius Chlorus reached the highest ranks of the military hierarchy, and in 293 was called by Diocletian and Maximian to share with them the government of the empire. Political expediency constrained him to separate from his first wife and to marry the daughter-in-law of Maximian. That seems to be all we know about Helena until her son Constantine became emperor himself. I do find this odd because her son and she became so important, but it seems likely that they were embarrassed of their humble origins and so wanted to keep quiet about them. You might even say that Constantine kept mum about his mother. Oh dear. We do not know for certain where Helena was born. One likely candidate is Drepanum in Bithynia, now Altinova, uh, across the Sea of Marmara from Constantinople in modern Turkey. This city was renamed Helenopolis by Constantine, which may suggest this was her birthplace. There is also no agreement about whether she and Constantius Chlorus were really married in a legal sense. Traditional Christian stories say that they were married, but many modern historians have suggested that she was really his concubine, or his common-law wife, because of the discrepancy in their ranks. I don't think it really matters from an historical point of view. Uh, I don't believe that the Romans had exactly the same ideas as later developed about legitimate marriages and children, and it certainly doesn't seem to have harmed Constantine's position if his parents were not properly married. We also do not know whether she was a Christian at this early stage. Constantine was not raised a Christian, and only converted in the later years of his life, so it is perhaps likely that Helena was not a Christian when he was born. But both Constantine and his father, Constantius Chlorus, were sympathetic and tolerant towards Christians. I think it was entirely possible that she converted at some point during her marriage to Constantius Chlorus and that her faith influenced her husband and son, but we have no way of knowing. And also, to speak of Christian conversion at this time may be misleading. It was a long process to become a full member of the Christian church. Today, we often think of baptism as the beginning of the Christian faith journey, but at that time it was almost the end, the culmination of a long process of initiation. 
Lots of people seem to have become interested and influenced by Christianity while still continuing to worship the old gods too. Even Constantine minted some coins showing pagan gods and goddesses and others with Christian symbols. The next thing we know about Helena is that when her maybe husband, Constantius Chlorus, became one of the junior emperors, they were forced to separate. As part of bringing him into the imperial family, Constantius Chlorus was married to a daughter of Maximian. We do not know what happened to Helena after this. We do know that Constantine, then about 20 years old, did not join his father's court and instead lived at the court of Diocletian, the senior emperor, for some years. It seems that Constantine and his mother Helena were very close, and so my guess is that Helena stayed with him at Diocletian's court. This would have placed her, now aged about 40, in Nicomedia, one of the leading cities of the empire, and living in some proximity to the corridors of power. The next event in Helena's life comes some 12 years later, in 306, when her former husband, the Emperor Constantius Chlorus, died. During his reign, he had been stationed mostly in Gaul, modern-day France, controlling the northern provinces of Gaul, Britain and the Rhine. The imperial capital of this part of the empire was Augusta Trevororum, modern-day Trier in the German Rhineland. In 305, the year before, Diocletian and Maximian had stepped down as senior emperors, and everyone moved up a level. Constantius Chlorus and his colleague became the senior emperors, and appointed two new men, whose names I won't trouble you with, as the new juniors. It was at this time that Constantine, now about 30, travelled to join his father, and it's possible that his mother Helena came with him. Constantius Chlorus campaigned vigorously against barbarian invasions across the Rhine, and also against barbarians and rebels in Britain, and it was there, in the army camp outside Eboracom, modern-day York, that the Emperor Constantius Chlorus died in 306. To quote Mike Duncan of the famous History of Rome podcast, Constantius Chlorus was around 56 years old and had ruled part of the Roman Empire for 13 years. And here we hit on the snag that begins to unravel Diocletian's elaborate College of Emperors. Technically, Constantius Chlorus's junior colleague should have become the new senior emperor, but instead, Constantius Chlorus's army in York acclaimed his son, Constantine, as emperor instead. This was not uh, this is not an episode about Constantine, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about all that. We'll save it for another time. All we need to know is that it sparked off another round of civil wars, and Constantine eventually became sole ruler of the Roman Empire. As soon as he was raised to the purple, Constantine brought his mother Helena to his court and gave her every possible honour. She lived at his court in Trier and later in Rome, where she had substantial lands. He eventually made her the Augusta, the Roman Empress, an office usually reserved for the emperor's wife, and a position which meant she could access the imperial treasury and be involved in the government of the empire at the top level. It seems that at times she was his co-ruler as much as any of his official imperial colleagues were. 
It is presumed that by this stage she had become a Christian, because from then on she supported the Christians and was an important patron of the church. She used her access to imperial funds to build and endow churches across the empire. We definitely know about her church building in Rome, where she had a large palace church complex built, which now survives in the Basilica di Santa Croce in Gerusalemme. All this speaks to me of a woman who was intelligent, ambitious, astute and commanding. Whatever her origins, she had clearly elevated herself to operate at the highest cultural and political level. At this time, there was an explosion of church building. With the accession of the Emperor Constantine and his famous Edict of Milan in 312, the Christian church emerged from its last great persecution and into imperial favour. Constantine apparently believed the Christian god was responsible for his success. Before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where he had defeated one of his rivals and secured the city of Rome, Constantine claimed to have seen the chi Rho symbol, the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which stood for Christ, in the sky, and heard a voice from heaven saying, In this sign you will conquer. He instructed his soldiers to paint it on their shields, they won the battle, and Constantine became committed to Christus Victor. That's the story anyway. Whatever the reason, Constantine became a patron of Christianity and particular church building, and sponsored a wave of building across the empire. To quote Dermot McCulloch, Christianity could now begin to indulge its long intoxication with architecture. The kind of church Constantine built tells us a little about how he saw Christianity. He basically ad adapted Roman secular political architecture for Christian purposes. He built basilicas. These were essentially large barns or rectangular buildings with raised platform at one end sitting under an apse or half dome. These were designed for imperial audiences. The emperor or his officials would sit under the apse and others would stand in the rest of the building and listen. The apse was designed to project the emperor's voice into the crowd. This design was appropriated for churches, and it remains part of the basic model in many churches today. We know that Constantine built a large church at Trier, the remains of which include a fresco of a woman of high status believed to be the Empress Helena, Helena may also have been involved in the construction of Constantine's new city, Constantinople. It was designed to be a new Rome and an entirely Christian city. The kinds of churches built here also tell us a bit about how Constantine saw Christianity. He was not a regular churchgoer, so he did not build small buildings appropriate for congregational worship, but large, ornate worship palaces, more suitable for sacrificial worship to the new patron god of Rome. These churches were often dedicated to aspects of God that made them not dissimilar to the pagan temples of old Rome, things like Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom, and Hagia Irene, Holy Peace in Constantinople, or the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. More on that in a bit. The most famous episode of Helena's life came at the end of it, when she was apparently nearly 80. 
This was her pilgrimage to Jerusalem. At the time, Jerusalem was a bit of a backwater. The major Christian centres were the centres of Roman power. Of course, Rome and Constantinople, but also Alexandria, the jewel of the Greek East, and Antioch, the capital of Roman Syria. Jerusalem itself had been demolished during the Jewish revolt when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and the Christian community there, which had been the first ever church, of course, led by Jesus' brother, James the Less, moved to a nearby town and did not come back. Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Emperor Hadrian as a pagan city known as Aelia Capitolina, but it was a sleepy provincial backwater in both politics and church. By this stage, the Christian structure was modelled on the Roman administration, so each city or civitas had a bishop. These became dioceses, and the cities were grouped into provinces, and each of those had a metropolitan, which later would be called an archbishop. Jerusalem, or Aelia as it was known, had a bishop, but he was subject to the bishop of Caesarea Maritima, a city on the Palestinian coast which was also the provincial capital. One explanation we have for Helena's pilgrimage relates to the brutal death of the Emperor Constantine's wife and son. The story goes that the Emperor's wife Faustina accused his son by a previous marriage, Crispus, of trying to rape her. Constantine had Crispus killed, and then when he discovered Faustina's deceit, he was so angry that he had her drowned in a bath. In his new book on the early church, Charles Freeman suggests that Helena had some hand in this affair. Whatever it was, we don't know, and that as a penance, her confessor instructed her to visit the Holy Land. Whether that is true or not, we do know that in 325, Constantine held a council at Nicaea, calling together all the bishops of the Christian church to establish the rules for Christian belief. One of the attendees was Macarius, the bishop of Aelia, or Jerusalem, who was keen to promote his see as the home city of Christianity. He successfully lobbied Constantine for a status upgrade and was sent home with instructions to begin a huge church-building project of his own. Sometime soon after that, Constantine dispatched his mother Helena to inspect the progress. This sort of thing may have been a key part of Helena's role in government. If the examples of English medieval queens are anything to go by, the Augusta would have been involved in things like cultural and religious patronage. She visited the Holy Land, touring Nazareth and the surrounding area with Bishop Macarius. As well as Jerusalem, they also visited Nazareth and Bethlehem. Around this time, Macarius made the sensational discovery of the supposed site of Christ's death and resurrection under the temple built by the Emperor Hadrian. This place, which became known as the Holy Sepulchre, or Holy Tomb, became the site for a major church built under the patronage of Constantine and Helena. This basilica was probably the first church with a cupola, or dome, of the sort that would become famous on the Hagia Sophia and other late Roman churches. The current church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem stands on the spot today. 
it is possible that there was a local continuous tradition associating this place with Christ's death. So the discovery may have been more about publicising something that Macrinus already knew or believed. As well as the Holy Sepulchre, Helena also built new shrines at Bethlehem and the Mount of Olives. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which you can still visit today, contains some of the same church begun by Helena. Her visit to Jerusalem was important. It demonstrated the imperial family's piety and their commitment to Christianity. Her patronage also restored the fortunes of the Holy Land as a centre of Christian worship and importance. The bishopric of Jerusalem was elevated to a senior status and would eventually become one of the five patriarchs of the church. As well as that, Helena also generated imperial endorsement of the idea of pilgrimage, and particularly pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Before this, there seems to have been little sense of the theology of pilgrimage, the idea that God was somehow more accessible in certain holy places than others, was opposed by many of the top theologians of the day, including John Chrysostom and Gregory of Nyssa, who argued that God could be equally accessed anywhere. This Jerusalem project was slow to get off the ground, partly because people were not interested in pilgrimage yet, and because Jerusalem was an unappealing backwater, but also because of its Jewish connection. The church was by now overwhelmingly Gentile and either Latin or Greek-speaking and had become quite unconnected from its Jewish roots. Eusebius of Caesarea, Constantine's biographer, wrote, To think that the formerly established metropolis of the Jews in Palestine is the city of God is not only base, but even impious, the mark of exceedingly petty thinking. It should be noted that Eusebius was the metropolitan bishop who controlled Jerusalem, so he may have been wary of one of his juniors becoming more important than he was. But the pilgrimage idea caught on. For many, God and a sense of holiness were more accessible in special places. Pilgrimage began to flourish and Jerusalem with it, largely thanks to the attention paid to it by Helena Augusta. This is the point in the story where we start to stray into Christian mythology, because the thing that Helena is most famous for doing is one thing that she almost definitely did not do. The church tradition claims that on her visit to Jerusalem, she miraculously discovered the true cross, that is, the cross upon which Christ was crucified. This became Jerusalem's holiest relic. But historians think the story cannot be true, Apart from the fact that it seems reasonably unlikely that the true cross survived, and that there have been hundreds of true crosses and pieces of the true cross throughout history, no one at the time claimed that Helena had made this discovery. By the end of the century, some 75 years later, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem was claiming to possess the true cross that had been found around the time of Helena's visit, but her name does not seem to have been associated with the cross until decades after Helena's death. 
Its apparent discovery was probably advertised to promote Jerusalem's status and claim to become an important Christian centre, and the Jerusalemites thought it was useful to have imperial patronage attached to their greatest discovery. Claiming a royal or saintly association seems to have been a popular thing to do for church communities that were looking to improve their standing. There is a 9th century life of St. Helena written in Trier, which claims her as a native of that city, which was probably written when Trier was trying to become an archbishopric. Whether the story of Helena's discovery of the true cross is true or not, and it is in all likelihood not, she did help to promote the city of Jerusalem and wide interest in the story of Christ's passion with the cross as its symbol. As part of the revolution brought in by Constantine and his mother, the Cairo and the cross became the universal symbols of Christianity, eclipsing the more subtle fish that had been popular in the early church. The other popular myth about Helena is that she was not in fact a lowly innkeeper's daughter from Bithynia, but was actually a British princess. This story is also quite widespread. Apart from anything else, it is apparently something that I believed to be true last week, as I announced Helena as the British-born mother of the Emperor Constantine in the conclusion of last week's episode. This myth seems to stem from the fact that Constantine was in Britain when he became emperor. However, it has no basis in fact, and is first recorded in the work of a 12th century English historian, Henry of Huntingdon. The story was picked up by Geoffrey of Monmouth, the inventor of most of the Arthur myths, who tells us that Helena was the daughter of the mythical King of Britain, Old King Cole. Yes, that Old King Cole. This story is almost certainly untrue, particularly as there were no kings of Britain in Constantine's time, but it has stuck. Helena was very popular in medieval England, and there are lots of churches dedicated to her, including St. Helen's in Brantbruton, Lincolnshire, where I myself was baptised many years ago. This legend has a useful side effect for me, which is that because of her supposed British connection, Helena has a long and detailed entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, which is a fantastic source, but reserved only for people connected with British and Irish history. Helena Augusta died soon after her return from Jerusalem, at around 80 years old. History relates that Constantine was present for the death of his dear mother, with whom he had shared the government of the empire. She was buried in Constantine's mausoleum outside Rome, near the graves of the other emperors. Her sarcophagus is still known to us, on display in the Vatican Museums, and several places boast some of her bones, including the cathedral in Trier, which, gruesomely, displays what it claims to be a part of her skull. Although the dynasty that she had helped to found did not survive the century thanks to more civil wars, and although the Roman Empire was not to survive much longer either, Constantine's revolution in promoting the Christian church did survive, and Helena had a large part in that. Helena's personal legacy lived on too, and she became a model for Christian queenship throughout the Middle Ages and beyond. The 6th century Pope Gregory the Great praised her for bringing Christianity to her people.
Her feast day in the Anglican and Orthodox churches is the 21st of May, which is why I am focusing on her this week. For whatever reason, the Roman Catholic Church commemorates her on the 18th of August. As a nice postscript, it is apparently because the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic was discovered on that day in 1502 that it was named in her honour. Thanks for listening to this episode of Saintly Progress, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion about Helena Augusta. If you enjoyed it, do tell your friends, and please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. It all helps to help other people find us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send me an email at saintlyprogress at gmail.com. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about St. Augustine of Canterbury, the Italian missionary monk who is credited with bringing Christianity to England. Until then, thanks for listening.